So we are continuing in our series of 66 books, 66 messages, and this morning we come to the small little letter from Paul to Philemon. Um, and in this letter, the apostle focuses on how true Christian maturity in the church is realized in the context of relationship. One of the most profound um, pieces behind the letter to Philemon is the way in which it is addressed to one person, even though it is read to the wider body of believers. Paul uses um, the plural form of the second person pronoun you in verses 3, 22, and 25. But everywhere else in this letter, the apostle singles out Philemon as the you. It's the singular form of the second person pronoun. And this is a good lesson, I believe, for us to realize concerning the way that God's message, while shared among many believers, is actually directly spoken to you. It is directly spoken to me. And so the word of God is to the church, and it is for the church, but it speaks powerfully to each one of us directly. What God has to say to Philemon is an important message for the church universal, even as it is spoken to him as an individual. So I do not think I am out of line in encouraging you to attend your hearts and your minds to God's word and to the ways that the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to you. To that end, I would just ask you to pray again with me. Let's pray together. Um, Holy Spirit, um, as we come now to the time of the reading and the communication of your truth, I pray that you would direct our hearts and our minds to what Christ would say to us, how he would challenge us to walk in new ways. Christ, be glorified here in this place. We pray in your name. Amen. So first, the church is not a building. The apostle writes in verses 1 through 7, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. The church in Paul's day was not confined to a particular building, but it most frequently met in people's homes. Church buildings devoted to the gathering of Christians were unknown during the early stage of the church's development. 
Yet as of 2020, according to the National Congregational Study Survey, there were 380,000 church buildings in the United States. About 314,000 of them are Protestant, with a current median size of 75 regular worshipers. According to Gallup, only 40% of Americans presently attend church with any regularity. Research also shows that congregations presently spend the greatest amount of their resources on their buildings while making full use of the property only a few hours each week. No architectural structure is used so sparingly in the world. It is thus of no small consequence when I say that none of the New Testament letters, none of the New Testament epistles concern themselves too much with where God's people met. Rather, the letters and epistles concern themselves with our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul commends Philemon for the relationships that he cultivates with believers in the church. What is important for the church is not its building, but the people who gather there. So a young minister in Oklahoma had gone to a long-standing um, church in hopes of revitalizing it. He had been there a number of years and gave his best effort, but it was to no avail. And so the pastor did something radical. This actually happened. He put a notice in the local newspaper about a funeral service that was going to be had for the church that had died. And much to his surprise, 30 minutes before the funeral service was to take place, the church was packed. Much to their surprise, at the front of the sanctuary, he had a casket, and on that casket, beautiful flowers just spread out across it. And the people were all curious about the casket. The pastor presented a eulogy about the church. It was short. And then he removed the flowers from the casket, and he opened the casket, and he invited people to come and pay their respects to the church. And so people were mighty curious, and they began to file up and around, and they looked in the casket, and there was a mirror. And what they saw were their own faces. And they left sheepishly from that sanctuary. As they walked by, they knew the church that dies is not a building. The church that dies is a people. When a church lives, it is because the people are beloved brothers and sisters. It's because they are fellow workers. It is because they are fellow soldiers. It is because they are a people united in common love and through a common faith. It's exactly why Paul had written earlier in Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself 
through love. For the church to be the church, it does not matter where we gather. It matters, are we committed to our faith and are we expressing that faith towards one another and towards others in love? And second, the church is not born out of compulsion. Paul continues in verses 8 through 14, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will." Make note, this is Paul's first imprisonment um, in Rome. This is not nearly as severe. It's not solitary. It's not like what we saw when we were looking at 2 Timothy, where he was essentially in a dungeon and was um, ready himself to be beheaded. So people would have had access to Paul in his imprisonment during this time. And somehow or another, Onesimus had encountered Paul. And in that encounter, um, he had received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he had begun to minister to Paul in various ways. But Paul is writing now an appeal to Philemon as a disciple of Jesus. And what he highlights is that disciples of Jesus should not respond out of a sense of compulsion, but disciples of Jesus should respond from a spirit of love. It was the same spirit of love which characterized Philemon in his house church that Paul wants to characterize Philemon in the request that he is about to bring to Philemon's attention. Paul, as an apostle and as Philemon's spiritual father, could have easily commanded Philemon to obey what he says to do, but God does not desire from us legalistic compliance. After all, forced goodness is no goodness at all. It is mere moral conformity. God desires for us to respond through love. It is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, do everything in love. And Paul is sending back to Philemon a runaway slave named Onesimus. But that in and of itself might cause our emotions to boil. Why does Paul praise a man as loving who owned slaves? Why is Paul sending back Onesimus at all? You need to know that slavery in those days among the Jews was not the same as chattel slavery or stealing and selling people like what happened in the middle passage slave trade. 
Both the Old and the New Testaments condemn the practice of man-stealing, which is what happened in Africa in the 16th to 19th centuries. This practice is abhorrent to God. The penalty for such a crime in the Mosaic law was death. The Lord says in Exodus 21, verse 6, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him, once found out, must be put to death. Then Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10, that slave traders are among those who are ungodly and sinful. They're in the same category as those who would kill their own father and mother. Further, the Bible condemns race-based slavery because all persons, all persons are created in the image of God. But the Old Testament did allow for and it did regulate economic-based slavery. You see, people would sometimes sell themselves as slaves when they were unable to pay their debts or when they could not provide for their families. In New Testament times, sometimes doctors, lawyers, even politicians were known to be slaves. Slaves were required to remain in service until their owner um, agreed to just let them free or the debt that they had sold themselves into had been paid. That was Onesimus' situation. But he had neither paid off his debt nor had he been released. So he was still bound to his service to Philemon. After becoming a believer, I believe that Onesimus agreed with Paul that he needed to return and set things right. Failure to deal face-to-face -face with difficult circumstances in the church can hinder its effectiveness. Sometimes we need to have a hard conversation. Sometimes we may need to do a hard thing. The next, the church is not based on social standing. Paul says in verses 15 to 20, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let's face it. It's Easy to love people who do exactly what we expect from them. You do what I want you to do, I love you. But, let's face it, it's hard to love people who we feel have taken advantage of us. It's hard to love people who we feel have wronged us in some way. How does the fellowship of believers become effective, particularly in difficult situations? So Onesimus had sold himself into slavery as something of an indentured servant, if you will. But 
during his time of service, Onesimus did not appear to have been a hardworking individual. Verse 11, Paul describes him as having been useless. Most believe verse 18 shows that Onesimus had stolen something from Philemon, probably in an effort to escape to Rome. To say the least, Onesimus represented a difficult situation. Under Roman law, there were no limits to the punishment that a master could inflict on a runaway slave. If caught, the master could have the slave put to death. But Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a brother, not as a slave. Onesimus was returning as a different man, as a saved man, as a useful man. The slave had become a son, had become a friend. And that is a powerful picture of what has happened to each of us if we are in Christ. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It is why Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 11, There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. It is why Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Philemon should regard Onesimus as owing him nothing, just as God regards us as owing him nothing because of the debt that was paid through the death of Christ for us. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus did not pay part of our sin. He paid it in full. And so he says in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And that is precisely why Paul wants Philemon to do more than just receive Onesimus back without repercussions. What Paul wants Philemon to do is set him free. The apostle says in verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Most importantly, most importantly, the church is not built on faulty human constructs, but through a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ who if he truly has his way in us, will use us as change agents in a fallen world. 
A crucial part for us to embrace is how Scripture approaches reformation of society. It does not begin outside in. It begins inside out. And what I mean by that is whenever Jesus Christ truly takes hold of us, he changes the way we think, he changes the way we act, he changes the way we love. For, for Paul, true societal change will only take shape as a result of internal and spiritual transformation. And so he did not argue the abolition of slavery in theoretical terms. He did what he could on a personal level to eliminate its injustices by means of the gospel and by means of the power of Christ to liberate and to set on a level playing field all persons. Because again, the ground is level the foot of the cross. A person who has experienced God's gift of salvation and freedom from the slavery of sin as God reforms his soul will realize that enslaving another human being in any form is wrong. A person who has experienced God's amazing grace will be gracious Towards others. That would be the Bible's prescription for the ending of unjust constructs of all types. Remember John Newton? You know John Newton, the author of the familiar hymn Amazing Grace? As a young man, he became the master of a slave ship transporting slaves from Africa. It was said that you would rarely come across John Newton without a gun or a whip in his hand and a bottle of whiskey. But in 1748, at the age of 23, he had a brush with death in a vicious storm at sea. It caused him to contemplate the true meaning of life. He picked up a copy of a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And as a result of reading that book, and the Holy Spirit convicting him, John Newton gave his life to Jesus. Amazing Grace is something of his spiritual biography. Um, amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was after his conversion that Newton left the slave business, went into ministry, and some years later joined William Wilberforce and other leaders in the crusade to abolish slave trade in England. In the year of John Newton's death, 1807, King George III signed into law the Act of the Abolition of the Slave Trade. And that's beautiful. And that's wonderful. But I fear there is a tendency to look at slavery as being something of the past. Only it is estimated that there are over 27 million people in the world who are still subject to slavery, forced labor, sex trafficking, and so on. 
as those who have been redeemed from the slavery of sin, as those who are followers of the person of Jesus Christ, the church, not a building, not out of compulsion, but because we know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and because we know we have been set free, the church, you and me, need to be a voice for social reformation. And not because we are humanists, but because we have been rescued by the gospel. We are advocates of Jesus Christ. The one alone who has the power to change lives and set people free. So I ask you this morning, have you been set free? Have you been set free from the wicked one who would enslave you in your sin? And if you say yes, won't you be about being an agent of change in a world that needs to be set free? Let's not just gather in a building a few hours a week and leave and do nothing. Because that's not the church. Pray with me. Christ, today we bask in your grace that is so amazing. As wretched as I am, you have set me free. And that we might have a concern practical concern for those who are enslaved in all kinds of ways. That because of our relationship with you, Jesus, we would seek justice and mercy, forgiveness and grace in a world that has fallen and made up of so many faulty human constructs. The only construct that can set a man, a woman, a boy, a girl free is to see gospel rescue throughout this world. Move, Spirit of God, through your church, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is from John Newton's familiar song, Amazing Grace. The altar is open, my friends.